The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. uh, There you have it. So, well, turn in your copy of God's Word to Mark 1, verse 1. If you have one of our blue Bibles, it's on page 488. In that Bible I just gave you, ma'am, it's on page 1. But put a bookmark here, um, because we are going to spend many months, as I said, in this book. You know, as we are journeying along in God's Word, as God has been doing a great work among our church, I really believe now's the time in our faith and in our church to do these things. It's now's the time to grow in our understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now's the time to increase in our adoration and our worship of Jesus Christ. Now's the time to pick up our pace and our relationship and our walk with Jesus Christ. And what will inform and inspire all three of those things to those ends? It will be the inspired word of God. It's the Bible that will allow us to grow in our understanding, to increase in our worship, and to pick up the pace in our walk with Christ. See, in the Bible is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Everything within the pages of Scripture points to this man. Everything in this, in this book is centered around this man. He is the beginning. He is the end. He is the climax, the center of every page of God's Word here before you. And so as we get into the book of Mark, I am delighted for us to see just who this man is. You know, last spring, AJ and I, we we drove out to West Texas in search of some hogs. And as we were driving out there, we were going through one of those small towns uh, to pick, and we stopped at a grocery store to pick up some snacks and to uh, get some things that we needed for this trip. And as we were checking out in the, uh, in the like, candy little thing there, the racks that you have, there was this magazine um, with this picture on it. It's a History Channel magazine, and it had this, you know, kind of iconic picture of Jesus. And then there, the title, Jesus, His Life and story. And now this was just before Easter. And so, you know, around Easter and Christmas, Jesus gets a lot of attention in the media. Everyone's trying to figure out who this guy is. And, you know, what struck me as we were going through was the likelihood that somebody would, you know, spend the $5.99 or whatever this magazine was to discover who this man is. And I'm sure it had truthful things in, some scientific things, some, you know, extra biblical sources about the reality of this man walking this earth. Nobody can deny that. Nobody can deny that he was an actual real physical person who occupied planet earth some 2,000 years ago. There's just too much historical data to deny his very existence. But it is who he is that comes under question. Who is this man But the likelihood of someone buying this was probably greater when really God's word is all around us. It's readily available. It's reliable. It's authoritative. It tells us everything that we need to know about this man. It's authoritative. It's sufficient. It is inspired. And when it comes to Jesus, all of us are really asking this question, who is this man? 
Who is this man? And that's the overarching question of the first eight chapters of Mark. Mark, really, he he skips over the first 30 years of Jesus' early life, and he gets immediately to his ministry. Jesus comes on the scene. He takes the world by storm, and every person that he meets, everything that happens, it just leaves people in awe, asking like, who is this guy? Who is this man? And so I'm endeavoring with you for the next several months, particularly through Mark 1 through 8, to answer that very question. And today's passage, Mark 1, 1 through 13, reveals that Jesus is the promised Son of God. But what are we to do with that? This is who is this man? What should we do? Well, we should, here's the big idea, make way for the promised Son of God. Of God. Make way for the promised Son of God. Let's read these first 13 verses and then we'll go a little bit deeper in it. Follow along, if you will, as I read our verses for us. Mark 1 1 begins this way The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. This is God's word for God's people. Did you notice here how Mark has a very abrupt style of writing? Not a lot of details. You know, he's kind of a man. He's just like, here's the bottom line right up front. We don't need to go into all the details. We don't need to go. It's like, he was in the wilderness. He's being tempted. He just has a very abrupt style. He wastes no time with introductions. We don't even know. He doesn't even introduce himself. He just jumps right into, here is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But let's just pause here because what do we know about the man who wrote this book, who God moved and inspired to pen these words? Well, in the book of Acts, we find out a lot about him. We've seen him in this last series that we just finished up. He was a protege of both Peter and Paul and Barnabas. He was actually Barnabas's cousin. We find out that his mom was named Mary. In Acts chapter 12, uh, she's hosting a prayer meeting at her house when Peter gets released from prison and he goes there and John Mark or Mark is there. We find out later that Paul and Barnabas, as they are venturing out on their missionary journeys, he came along with them. At some point, he abandoned the work, and then it actually caused a disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. 
John Mark goes with him uh, with Barnabas and he goes off on some missionary journeys there. Paul goes his separate ways and takes others with him. But what is really cool, we can't miss this, is that later in Colossians 4, we find out that somewhere along the way, John Mark and Paul were reconciled. They were brought back together to where Paul even says, would you, would you send Mark to come to me and minister, to, or minister with me? And so Mark has all kinds of firsthand experience. It's traditionally held that Mark was a protege of Peter, and this is what he gleaned from Peter's memories and Peter accounting to him the work of Christ. And so he pens this gospel. And so look at me with verse one now, if you will. There's no introduction of Mark, but he just jumps right into what he's doing. He says, this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is where it all begins. And so if we're to make way for this promised Son of God first... Let's hear the messenger. Let's hear the messenger. You know, this, this, this section here really begins with two messengers or two announcers. You know, it's kind of like um, you have, maybe if you've been to a collegiate or a professional sports game. Anyone ever been to one? And as the starting lineup comes out, there's an announcer, right? It says, this is who is participating tonight. This is who is starting. If you've been to a boxing match, you have the announcer that tells you who it is that is coming to play. Here, the son of God, the greatest man to ever draw oxygen, really has two announcers, two messengers. The first one, the scriptures, the Old Testament prophecies that had prophesied that he would come and that a messenger would come before him. And the second one being this wilderness preacher named John the Baptist. Now, don't be confused there. He's, it's really just describing the method of his ministry. It's not like some sort of denominational affiliation. It's not like he's a Baptist and not a Methodist or a Presbyterian or something like that. He's John the baptizer. So maybe you don't have any confusion about that, but he, that is really just describing the method of ministry. And so he sends these two messengers, the Old Testament scripture, this wilderness preacher, to answer this question, who is this man? And we have to go way back before Jesus was born. Look with me at verse 2. As is written in Isaiah the prophet, he, he quotes now from Isaiah 40, verse 3. But what's interesting about this is this verse not only is in Isaiah 40, there's echoes of it all the way back in Exodus 23. And then again in Malachi 3, verse 1. Not only was the son announced, not only was the son prophesied that he would come, but also his announcer, also his messenger that this is how God's people would know that the Son of God is coming because he would be preceded by this messenger. You know, in those days, the historical context here is that if a king was coming to your town, if let's say you're near your village and the king of that land was coming, he would send before him an ambassador. He wouldn't just show up. The, the king wouldn't just show up with business, you know, taxes to collect or something like that. He would send before him a messenger, an ambassador, Somebody that would come and say, make way for the king. He is about to come and he would set up preparations. He would find where they would, where they would live and stay and all those things so that the people could adequately prepare for his coming. And so the fact that the king of kings has an announcer should not take us by surprise. This is something that God was saying, he will come, he will come. He will come. And can you imagine in those days with John the Baptist coming, these people that knew the scriptures, John the Baptist comes proclaiming this message and then Christ comes. Can you imagine the confidence that they were able to draw from seeing God's word being fulfilled right before their very eyes? Beloved, as we think about 
the Old Testament, as we think about the prophetic books of Scripture, as we think about the promises of God, this is where we draw our strength, our hope, and our confidence. In the fact that when God says something, it is as good as done. Look at this verse from Joshua 21. I was reading it this week in my Bible reading, and I was just struck by it. These are the people of God that are now in the promised land. They have acquired the land that God promised them that they would have. Their numbers are massive, just as God promised to Abraham that he would have many offspring. And it says this, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Isn't that fantastic? When God says something, it is as good as done. Everything came to pass, and God has a perfect history of his faithfulness. Or look here in Romans 4, Paul's account of Abraham's faith. Abraham, who was the, he, he's the guy that God made these promises to. Look at what it says here in Romans 4. It says, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. Isn't that fantastic? Isn't that fantastic? Isn't that a great example of godly faith, of strong, resolute, confident expectation in the promises of God? See, beloved, this is where we draw our confidence from. See, the, we, in our marriages, we don't draw strength and confidence and hope based on the degree of love that our spouse gives to us. Our confidence comes from the fact that God said, this relationship is good. That this relationship is part of one of my instruments for your holiness. We don't draw it based on outside circumstances. Our hope of heaven the fact that, we, that we, are, we are promised and looking forward to glory is not based in our strength and our ability to do all the right things, but simply because God said, if you have faith in me, it'll be credited to you as righteousness. And our confidence, our hope in that is in God himself and his faithfulness to his promises. Our ability to follow the commands of God, to walk in obedience, our faithfulness is not in our own strength. Our confidence comes from the fact that the Holy Spirit resides in us, just as Christ promised. And now he is. And now he is helping us and comforting us and encouraging us. See, beloved, as we hear the messenger, as we look to the scriptures, the one who is promising and proclaiming that the announcer would come and the promised son of God was come, we can draw great confidence to live our life even here and now. But let's look. Let's continue on in verse 4. Because see now, John appears. Let's look at this second messenger, this wilderness preacher. He appears... And what's the nature of his ministry? He's baptizing and preaching, right? Look at verse four. He's baptizing in the wilderness. He's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Man, he has a preparatory ministry. He's preparing the way by preparing people by repentance. See, we come to the Lord with humble, repentant hearts. We cannot come in our pride. We cannot come in our own accomplishments. No, we come before the Lord in humility, in humble repentance. See, John's baptism, he knew this. This wasn't a baptism that could save anybody. This was simply a means to say, come, confess that God is coming. The one who will save you is soon to come. 
The one whom I am unworthy even to untie his sandals will soon be here. My baptism is one just of preparation. That's why he's saying mine is just of meager water. But one is coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. One who is coming that will, whose ministry is entirely different. And beloved, we can't get this wrong. We can't mistake what is happening here. See, John knew this, Christ knew this, and he is preparing us in this is that our baptism does not save us. Our baptism is not a mark. What we do as we come before the Lord is simply just a proclamation of the work that God has already done in our hearts. The baptism is just a sign. The messenger is really nothing. And so as we are proclaiming our testimony, as we are changed in Christ, yes, we praise God for the person that shared the gospel with us. A parent, a grandparent, a pastor, a kids ministry worker, a friend, a coworker, whoever it was, praise the Lord for them, but they did not save you. John the Baptist did not save anybody. Christ saves all. It's not our baptism that we look back to. It is not the hallmark of the day that we were saved. It is the inward work that Christ wrought to regenerate our hard hearts, to pluck out our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. And this is the one whom we look to. We look to Christ. John's ministry was one of baptism and preaching. His message was one of repentance. And his manner of life, look at this, his manner of life was one of extreme humility. You see this? It's kind of like crazy. Look at verse 6. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. That wasn't like some fashion trend in those days. All right? We're gonna be don't don't be putting on like camel hair or something like that. Something you know, like furs, that was not not great. Look what his diet was. Locusts dipped in honey. I guess the honey would make him tasty, right? I mean pretty much anything. If you dip it in enough honey, it'd probably go down all right. It'd probably make it tasty enough. But it's it's just exemplary here of a life of extreme humility. We see it in his ministry. We see it as he, as he lifts high Christ. We see it in how he lives. Beloved, humility is a defining characteristic of Christ's followers. This is a defining characteristic. It doesn't mean that we have to live in poverty. It doesn't mean that we have to wear itchy clothes. It doesn't mean that we just have to eat bugs and honey. But it does mean that we think highly of Christ and of others. It does mean that we think highly of Christ and others and the fact that he allows us in to his ministry. See, John knew his role and he loved it. He wasn't trying to be the Messiah. He wasn't trying to be the most popular guy. He was a humble man who knew his role and he loved it. Do you know your role? Do you love the gifts that God has given you? Do you love the place that he has given you in the kingdom of God, particularly maybe in Redemption Bible Church? the skills and the gifts that he has given you. John knew he was a messenger. He knew his gifts. He knew his place. And he served Christ with joy. He had a massive ministry. If there was ever a man who had a very unique and significant role in the gospel ministry of Jesus Christ, it was this man. And yet he says, I am not even worthy to do the lowest job. I can't even touch this man's feet, which was what the, a job for the lowest of servants. And now this wasn't some sort of misplaced humility. This wasn't some sort of false humility. He just simply knew that he was not worthy of the ministry that God had put in front of him. He was just an unworthy servant doing what he ought. And that, beloved, is what gave him great worth. The fact that he was unworthy to do this ministry does not make him a worthless person. Just like whatever God has given to you, whatever ministry he has put before you, it's not that it's, you are worthless, 
but you've been given great worth because God in his great mercy has said, here, this is your place. Come and enjoy the ministry of the gospel with me. Know your role. Love it. Be humble as God has put these things right before you. Where does God have you right now? What ministries? What responsibilities? What has he enabled you to do? Who's he, uh, what neighbors has he put next to you? Do you know it? Do you hear the messenger? Do you hear the one who's just preparing the way for Christ? That's all we do. We are just introducers. We're just matchmakers in many ways. As we come and say, hey, I want to introduce you to the the promised son of God. The most incredible person you would ever meet. See, the messenger prepared the way for the promised son. John the Baptist, he announced Jesus coming. And then in verse 9, who comes on the scene? Look at it. Who comes on the scene? In verse 9, Jesus arrives. He arrives and he actively obeys the father. See, as we make way for the promised son of God, we must hear the messenger. We must hear the words of scripture that said, he's coming, he's coming. And then the one, the John the Baptist, the messenger, the preacher that says, he's here, he's here. And Christ comes on the scene, hear the messenger, but now heed the son. Heed the son. Look, let's look at his example here. See, we just have two short snippets of some massively significant events in Jesus' ministry. Take notes now on how it begins. He gets baptized in verse 9 by immersion by John the Baptist. But we must stop here. Why does Jesus get baptized? You ever thought about that? Ever wrestled with it? A question that's ever been on your mind? Why does he? We know that baptism is a public profession of the inward change that God has worked in us. It is a way that we as individuals, we announce, hey, I'm a new creature in Christ. It's the way that we identify with his death, burial, and resurrection. It's a way that we announce to our church family, to those who love us, those around us, say, I identify with Christ. I'm a Christian. But Jesus didn't need to do that. He hadn't sinned, had he? Did Jesus need to get saved? No. You shake your head. No, no he didn't. He didn't. He didn't need transformation. He didn't need a new heart. So Why? Why? Well, let me tell you, here's one reason, to set an example of obedience for his followers. He set us an example of what obedience looks like to the Father, that we might follow in his steps. See, if you're a Christian, baptism is a command for all who believe. If God has done a regenerative work in your heart, if you've repented of your sin, placed your faith solely in Christ for the forgiveness of sin, you are saved. It is by faith that we are saved and in nothing else. And yet Christ has commanded us to do many things then, to tell others about it, to live certain ways, to say no to sin and yes to righteousness, to godly living. And so baptism is a command of the scriptures that we walk in in obedience. Christ did it to show us how to do this, to show us the humility that it takes to do it. And so if we claim Christ as Lord and Savior, if you do, and yet you have not been baptized as a believer, well, let me ask you, what is keeping you from obeying the Father? What is keeping you from obeying the Word of God? Is it just a lack of opportunity? Like, I I don't know, I just place my faith in Christ. I've never, I've never had the opportunity to do it. Well, talk to me after the, the service and we'll see about making that happen. We'll, we'll, we'll make it happen. If that's just been, if you've lacked the opportunity, but you've wanting to obey Christ, we will make that happen. 
Maybe this, maybe in your own heart, you feel like, well, I'm just not good enough. Like I couldn't be baptized. I can't do this. I'm just, I'm just not good enough. I'm not a good enough Christian to do these things. Let me tell you, if that's been on your heart, if those have been thoughts that the, I would say the enemy has put in your life, let me just tell you this, you're not good enough. You're not. And that is exactly what qualifies you to be baptized. Because none of us are good enough. That's the whole point of this. That's the gospel, beloved. None of us are good enough to do anything. And that's not why Christ saved us. It's not why the Father chose us. It's not because we were good enough. Because he knew exactly that we weren't. But it was because Christ was good enough. Christ in obedience, setting an example for us, showed us how to do it. That's the whole point of repentance, saying, God, I'm not good enough, but I trust that Christ was on my behalf. We're not. No opportunity, not good enough. Maybe you're thinking in your mind, well, I, I, I was baptized as a child. And so I just, I don't know, my, there might be some family things here. I just, I was baptized as a child and I don't, there, I don't want to lose the significance of that. And so I don't want to be baptized as a believer, even though I see that the scripture clearly teaches this. Well, let me just tread into this uh, carefully because I want to say there are many brothers and sisters that believe different things about baptism. Genuinely saved people that have, uh, that have different conclusions from the scriptures on this topic. It's led to a lot of wars. Thankfully, none uh, really recently, but 500 years ago, people were putting people to death over this very issue. It's kind of a dark place in the midst of all the uh, Reformation light. And so in the midst of that, even if you were, and I understand that there were, were, were people that have different viewpoints, but let me just say this. Tradition never trumps biblical obedience. And we are called, there's an ironclad biblical case for the believer to be baptized. And so even there, we can talk through all the particulars of these things, but I would compel you, if you're a believer in Christ today, be baptized. Be baptized to publicly proclaim what God has done in your life. Let me just address one more. Maybe this is what's keeping you from biblical obedience. Maybe you're embarrassed of crowds. Anybody, that's where they're at? You're not going to raise your hand because you're embarrassed of crowds. (laughs) But if that's you, if that's, where, if that's where you're at, if, you're, if it's like, I just can't, I'm in the service, I get nervous, fear of public speaking is a real thing, right? So I'm like, it's a real thing. I understand. I, I, I genuinely do. And yet, I've seen this time and time again. God, by his spirit, giving grace to the most fearful person as they proclaim the good news in front of people that love them and are celebrating God at work in their life. Don't let that fear, the fear of public speaking, be what keeps you from identifying with Christ. God will give you the grace. He will give you the words. will help you. You don't have to be eloquent. There's nothing like that. But God will give you the grace and the strength that you need that is outside yourself to overcome that fear. I promise you he will. I promise you he will. You know, it's really interesting about baptism in Middle Eastern countries. Maybe you've heard this before. That, uh, especially as like, uh, young people come to faith out of uh, Islam, they turn back on uh, the, you know, the family history of uh, following Muhammad and they, uh, they, they follow Christ. Is that families, you know, they get upset, they get whatever when they just say, yeah, hey, I'm, a, I'm a Christ follower now. But as soon as they're baptized, then it's on then it's on. That's like the, you've sealed the deal. You've now publicly identified with Christ. 
Now you are no longer my son or daughter. Now you are out of our family. Now we are after you. Now your life is on the line. Some real consequences. There's some real, some, some real weight to this decision. Praise the Lord that we don't live in a context like that, that we can, we can just publicly, freely, among people that we love without fear, proclaim Christ. See, Christ was baptized as an example for us. Just show us an example of obedience. If you follow Christ, this is how you obediently follow him too. But let me just continue on in this. Is, is that the only reason why Christ was baptized? Just merely as an example? Was it just merely as an example? Was all of Christ, as we read through the gospel here, as we go through Mark, was it just to show us the right way to live? Some moral instructions of obedience of a Christ-following life. No, 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 beloved. It is that, but it is not merely an example. See, Christ was baptized here to identify with us sinful humans to be our perfect representative as he would go to the cross. As he would go to the cross, he could stand in our place, taking on God's wrath, having perfectly obeyed the will of God. From start to finish, from the beginning of his ministry to the end of his ministry, God the Father was pleased with the perfect obedience of his Son. From here, as we see from this beginning, the inauguration of his ministry. Look at here, it's like, it's like a Trinitarian coronation. Do you see this? Do you see this here? As the heavens are being torn open, you should think of Isaiah 64, 1, where, where, where the prophet there is saying, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Guess who's coming down right now? It's like, it's, 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 it's screaming of that verse here because here the king has come and it's the Holy Spirit is here. The father is here. Christ is here. And it is God the father saying, this is my son whom I am pleased in. And now we who know the end of the story, we know here's the inauguration, the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the good news or the beginning of the work of Jesus Christ. And as we fast forward several years to the end of Jesus' life on the cross in a very, in a similar way, but a very different way, God the Father was pleased or satisfied with the life of his son. Yes, he turned his back away but it was because he was the perfect sacrifice for us that we couldn't do. And so Christ here, as he's being baptized, is identifying with us. He's identifying with what it means to live on this earth, what it means to live here. The king has come. The promised one has arrived. And he is identified with sinful humanity in his baptism, but also, look, in our temptation. You see where it goes in verse 12 here? It's like it begins with this immediately. You see it here? Immediately, after there's this big, massive coronation, the Holy Spirit's there, God the Father is, and then immediately in verse 12, they throw a big party, don't they? What does it say? They throw a big party? No, the Spirit drives them out into the wilderness. Immediately, this is one of Mark's uh, words. You're going to see it all, all over the place. It's like nine times just in chapter one. It's like urgency. It's like immediately, immediately, this is what happens. After this, he's baptized. Immediately, it's the spirit that drives Jesus to the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan. He's surrounded by wild animals and he's served by angels for 40 days. It's almost like a Nat Geo documentary happening or something. Like you can hear the wolves hollowing in the background and the monkeys hooting and, you know, the bugs chirping and the rustling noises that night, you know, in a British voice that's narrating, you know, like um, <laughs> everything. It's kind of ominous. 
right? It's ominous here, and we don't get a whole lot of it, but he's there. There's like wild animals. Satan's there, and it's crazy. But beloved, in the same way that Jesus' baptism set us an example of obedience, and he identified with our weakness, so do so does really his wilderness trials show the same way. It sets us an example that immediately, as we, are Christ, as we come to faith, as we identify with Christ, you see this happen quite a bit, actually. People come to faith and life gets harder, not easier. That's right. Because now you are in a whole new domain. Colossians 1 says that we've been transferred out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. Do you think the ruler of that domain is very happy about that? He's not. He's not. But praise God that we have the help and the hope that we need. 1 Peter 4 tells us to expect that trials would come. We're not to be surprised. We're to expect them. They're part of God's will for our purification, our sanctification, as we are becoming more like Christ. Here, get this. Don't miss this, beloved. If you follow Christ, expect difficulty. Expect difficulty. Yes, we are blessed immeasurably by the Lord, aren't we? We have every spiritual blessing We have prosperity promised to us, but not without cost. Not without cost. Not without hardship and difficulty. And so here Jesus is showing an example. This promised son that is showing us, yes, this we can be expected. Christ faced it just the same way. He identified with us. That's why we can look to him for the help and the hope that we need. Because here he went through it just like us. You know, we don't get many of the details here. Mark is just trying to show us this very thing that he, we have a, a high priest, Christ, the promised one, can identify with us and he set us an example. But, I, but if you go to Mark or Matthew 4, rather, he highlights a whole lot of the details of it. He actually highlights a different portion of it. He, he, he highlights the, the temptations that Satan throws at him. And what does Jesus use to counter all those attacks? The word of God. He uses the word of God. to He counters every temptation with biblical truth. And beloved, let me just impress this upon you. If the scripture was a powerful enough a weapon for Christ to fight temptation, doubt, and sin, why would we turn to anything less powerful to help us in our moments of need? Heed the son's example here. Heed the son's example. He had great confidence in what Christ was do- or what God the Father was doing in his life. We too can have that same confidence. And so what should we do when temptation comes? When trials come? What should we do? Well, here's, here's some help for you. You know how maybe in the, on your refrigerator in case of emergency and you have these numbers to call? You ever have those? Those might be old. Maybe that was just me when I was a kid and you know, we had things like rotary phones and all that. You know, it was like in case of emergency, call... Well, it was before 911, but call grandma, call the police. In case of emergency, well, here's some things. Write these in your Bible if you want. Keep these close because temptation will come. Will come. In case of temptation, here are three people to call. Call on the Lord. When you're tempted, call on the Lord. God, help me. Hear my prayer. The Psalms are filled with cries of help to the Lord. Second, call to mind scripture. Case of temptation, call on the Lord. Call to mind scripture. These truths that you have hidden in your heart. 
Here's a great one. You see it all across the Psalms. <laughs> Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Just tuck that away. Bring, recall that to mind over and over and over. God is good. His steadfast love endures forever, even in the midst of this. In case of temptation, call to mind the scriptures. And last, and equally important, call on community. Call on your community. See, this is the beautiful thing of what God has done for us. See, he is so good. He is so wise. He knows all of our needs and he has set up the perfect plan for our care. He has given us all we need in his Holy Spirit's help. He's given us the word of God, which we have at our fingertips all the time. And he has also given us the church, our community to walk with us while we are being tempted. This is why we put so much stock in our small groups and the community of faith that God has given us here. Why it is so important because when we are tempted and we are often, especially if we are, are faithfully following the Lord, you need brothers and sisters to walk with you, don't you? Brothers and sisters that are praying for you, that are doing these other things, that are calling the Lord for you, that are helping you, reminding you of the scriptures in case of temptation, in case of trial, in case you find yourself in the wilderness, call these three numbers. Beloved Mark's, his sense of urgency here and his writing should really impress upon us the urgency of the message. Make way for the promised son of God in your life. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. The heavens have been thrown open here in a sense. They've been thrown open. That's what we were saying about God. Open up the heavens that we may see you. Open up the heavens that we may know your glory, that transformation may happen. He's thrown open the heavens. Christ has burst on the scene, unplugging our ears, unclogging our schedules so we would hear the message of scripture and we would heed the Messiah that has come. Beloved, this is what he does. Who is this man? Who is this man? He's the son of God, the promised son of God, the hope of all people. He's the one that has set us an example He's the one that has stood in our place. He's the one that we worship. Who is this man? He's God's son who's brought the good news of his death, burial, and resurrection that we might be saved. Let's worship him now and pray together.